I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Then the first pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork and I'm joined as always by Murray Kinsler of the 42.e. Murray, how are you? I'm great, Gav. Thanks. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. Delighted to be joined as always as well by Bernard Jackman. Birch, how are things on your end? Good, thank you. Loads to talk about today. We're going to look ahead to the province's European fixtures this coming weekend. We're going to look back briefly as well on Ireland's victory over Scotland. In other weeks, I think we would have sunk our teeth into it for half an hour or so but we'll be a little bit tight for time today because i think the rugby world and its associated news has been dominated this week by i guess off-field matters as they are now but matters that materialized on the field uh, you know within the last two decades people will be up to speed i think at this stage in relation to steve thompson michael lipman and alex popham uh, and a group of players, basically, uh, who came out during the week uh, discussing the after effects of their rugby careers. Uh, there was particularly emotional and moving interview given by Thompson, who outlined uh, details such as not being able to remember the World Cup final and so on. I, th- I think listeners to this podcast, as I say, are... Uh, up to speed on what's come out so far it's a massive massive story we're going to delve into it Bernard Jackman is obviously very well placed to discuss it as a former player and a coach and a man who has been open in the past about his issues with concussion Murray uh, you've had first-hand experience with it as well uh, as a player but as a journalist to begin with uh, God what are your thoughts on this what were your thoughts when it came out like to you, was there a sense of inevitability about this always likely to come down the tracks? Uh, or, or with that being said, were you still a little bit taken aback maybe by the detail provided in it or uh, just the fact that it actually did uh, come to fruition, if you like? It's it's a little bit more jarring when you hear it firsthand and you hear these firsthand experiences, despite the fact that we're aware, obviously, of the dangers associated with playing the game. It certainly is jarring to read that kind of stuff and, and read about diagnoses of early onset dementia and, and probable CTE. But it doesn't come as a great shock, if I'm being honest. I mean, I think World Rugby have been expecting and waiting for this to happen. Um, we've had numerous interviews over the years and accounts of players who've struggled greatly with the effects of, of brain injury post-rugby. Um, and you've kind of wondered when something like this might build towards being a legal case and that's what's happened now it's a group of eight test players who are who are going to you know lead this legal action with potentially quite a few more kind of hovering in the background um and you know if there's success for for this group of eight players then you would imagine there'd be a lot more like it so it's a massive moment obviously for the sport um in terms of probably perception of it on the outside but also financially like this could be it could be massive and you would imagine world rugby have been discussing this maybe in, in in the background and and planning for an eventuality of of this nature um it still makes it nonetheless uh, jarring as you say and sad to read those stories it is saddening and definitely scary as well i think for for people to realize w- what you know the some of the ill effects that can happen um like yesterday obviously was all about kind of 
preview media events for Munster Harlequins etc but it was really dominated with chat about this you know Graham Rowntree talking about having played with Steve Thompson Danny Kerr over in Quinns has played with Popham and Thompson as well and um, this really dominated the agenda and and probably will do for for another for another while anyway yeah Bernard you've lived it as well to some extent uh, there was talk obviously of these players reaching out to numerous other players around the world who've gone through similar or who have had uh, issues with head injury in the past if you don't mind me asking have you been contacted by them or were you contacted at any stage by them yeah I was contacted um, during the summer a couple of uh, unsolicited emails um, you know so I, I knew this was probably coming uh, the, the gist of the email I got was you know uh, who they were a London law firm um, and looking to to get together a group of players who had suffered concussion or are suffering um from con- concussion post playing to to take a case and i didn't reply to the email to be honest because i'm not luckily thankfully um suffering uh from from any symptoms and yeah so i didn't feel that it was it, w- it was right for me to 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 get involved in this because as i said i'm i'm very lucky but um so i knew there was probably something coming uh, and to be honest um i wasn't aware uh, steve thompson's kind of gone off my radar um for for a while and and I and I was uh, completely unaware that he was suffering um to this level. Alex Popham is a guy I I did get to know quite a bit um uh in in my time in the Dragons. Um he, he had a couple of business interests that he was looking to to tie in some of our partners and things. So I had contact with him and again, you know, I, I had no idea he was he was suffering as well and uh um and that's probably the the bit of a shock for me is that you know there's potentially there's an embarrassment or, or up to now there's been a hesitancy to kind of open up around um how people have been doing in, in that circle of, of of the rugby network so look at um you know it's, it's shocking what we've we've heard uh and 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 from from those two guys and um i haven't really seen a huge amount from lipman but those two interviews really um you know were, were scary and, and and i felt i felt really sorry for them and and um you'd have to imagine there's probably others suffering as well, so um, it is a. It's going to be a, a an interesting, interesting case. Um, I suppose from a, a legal point of view, um, I'd imagine they need to find negligence on on on, on the part of the one of the of the union or or World Rugby, and, and um, I'm sure it's going to be it's going to be hotly contested. And it's different than you know it's it seems to be different than what the NFL uh, case where. Um, they took a group action or uh, against the NFL. This seems to be, um, from what from my limited legal experience, is what I can see is they're going to run a couple of test cases and um, with probably the most obvious examples, and uh, maybe from that then others will follow. So uh, you know there was rumours of you know ten or twelve Irish players. I think I think ten or twelve Irish players have retired because of concussion. I actually and there's a bit of a misconception. I didn't. Retired because of concussion. I didn't have a an insurance claim against um, the insurance company because of concussion. Uh, I suffered a lot of concussions in my last year, and um, it was around the time that more evidence came out from from more or from many American sports, and and I just got involved with acquired brain injury Ireland to try and highlight how naive we were being as players, um, and probably how bad of an example we were given to the amateur players and and the kids by, you know. Um, not respecting serious injury, so um, yeah, I didn't I didn't retire because of concussion. I retired because um, 
my body was was banjaxed and concussion was part of that. Uh, but uh, and I wasn't honest with the doctors. Uh, I I covered up a lot of concussions, which obviously isn't very intelligent of me. But I I wanted to make sure others didn't feel the need to do that. So that's kind of why I got involved in it. And uh, yeah, thankfully, you know, I, I'm I'm not suffering now as 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 we've seen some some players are. So um, I've huge sympathy for them, but because I've no symptoms, it wasn't something that um, was was relevant to me to get involved in this now. There's so many angles to it, Murray, as well. And Bernard touched upon it there. If you were to run a test case and if one of those cases was successful from the point of view of the player in question or the, the person in question, uh, the floodgates could open, you would imagine, in that there would be precedent set. Uh, and just on a more kind of macro level, um, we've probably seen, even since uh, the interviews during the week, more interviews from other players talking about their issues with it. Uh, certainly if there was a stigma around that generation of players talking about how they've been doing in the interim, I think that will erode very quickly on the back of this. Uh, and I think it will become easy to be overwhelmed nearly as just consumers of rugby uh, by the volume of players who, who likely will come out and, and talk about their issues in relation to head injury. On the flip side of it, uh, the public perception of this particular thing from non-rugby fans or non-rugby journalists, non-rugby consumers is this seems like an unsustainable sport. Oh my God, what's going on? Like, how has this been allowed to continue, if you like? And it's important that to point out, I think, that we're nearly talking about a previous iteration of the sport in a lot of these cases. Um from Bernard's playing days, from Steve Thompson's playing days, there certainly was less awareness. I'm not going to pretend that there was no awareness of head injury. We've known for 100, 150 years via combat sports and other sports that if you take regular knocks to the head, there can be after effects. But rugby in recent years, in its most recent iteration, has obviously taken steps to, or taken preventative measures basically against the likes of this transpiring for the current generation, future generations, still work to be done in that department. But I just think it's important as well to contextualise it, if you like. We are talking about players from a different era of the sport uh, where there were fewer precautions taken. And those players are well within the rights to, to point that out. Don't get me wrong, but I think it is important to draw some kind of a divide between now and then, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And that's the kind of rhetoric that I've certainly encountered speaking to coaches and players who are working in the game right now. They'll all say, listen, it's really sad, but the game now is is very, very different. I think Rob Baxter's the latest. I just read some comments from him. I suppose defending how the sport treats head injury and concussion, and it has changed a lot. I mean, it is kind of jarring to think that the HIA only formally came into law as recently as 2015. And there are serious doubters of that HIA process, including Barry O'Driscoll, who obviously resigned in the wake of that it was a five minute HI at first and and that wasn't deemed fit for purpose so you know that was increased um I know there's people who doubt whether a, a player coming back within a week you know re- uh, completing those return to play protocols whether that's long enough that obviously used to be a kind of three week length and is in the amateur game as well which um you know is, is a great thing and that is a, a different game I suppose this is a, a case over professional rugby um, and certainly the sport has made good strides and I mean, Rob Baxter, he, he's kind of making the point that it's a bit of a leader now in terms of concussion um, and managing head injury, as it needs to be, because you're so much more exposed and it's such a dangerous sport. Obviously, everyone who 
pl- uh, plays and signs up to play understands that completely but yeah you're right it has changed totally drastically you, you know you look back at games back then and and you see footage of guys taking big knocks and playing on there wasn't a hi no one was pulled off um that obviously is not the case now at all i mean everyone's hyper aware of it every single game there's there's you know people on twitter are watching the game calling for you know was that a high tackle that player needs to be looked at and and generally they do uh, it's still not perfect obviously um and there's still more progress to make in that and even still around the education and awareness and every single person uh, taking the issue extremely seriously there's still progress to be made but it has changed certainly and that's actually what i was going to ask bernard like you obviously played in that same era Bernard and you coached in the professional game and you have a good awareness of what's going on how much in your eyes has it changed and where did it come from it changed massively uh, uh, and uh, like that's that's why I I backed away from um, probably being outspoken uh, uh, around concussion because I actually did see the uh, you know a vast change in 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 attitude from coaches from from players uh, alike and and I'm I'm lucky enough, you know. So my my son is twelve. He he plays uh, he plays he plays rugby. Um, I'm involved with Bective, so I have a have a, a touch on the the uh, the club game. You know, I'm doing a little bit with Newbridge, my old school. So I'm involved in in the school game with 17, 18 year olds, and you know I've been around a professional game. So I've seen I've seen a huge huge change. And for me, that's what all I all I kind of wanted to get uh, in two thousand and ten was. So I felt effectively as a player. That I, I was running. I was willing to take risks with my concussions for short-term gains of potentially a new contract or or win a a Heineken Cup, um, and then I, you know when I retired and I stepped out of that bubble, I realised that that was absolute madness. Um, but probably the culture culture of the dressing room was, you know, effectively it felt a little bit guilty, maybe not to train with a concussion or, um, the game because of concussion because it just wasn't the done thing. And, and I always remember. You know, we used to have a big whiteboard in in in, in Leinster where all the injuries would be, would be on it from long term to short term, and um, you know, I never saw a fellow up there um, with concussion, or very rarely anyway. Um, and I do think that world rugby has uh, made a massive effort, and I wasn't really a, f- a fan of the concussion bin to be honest at the start because I felt if there was a doubt, um, you know, just get them off and get them replaced and. Not have the pressure on the on the medics in a in a ten minute period, and obviously the, that's extended now. But um, to make a decision, because um, I felt that for the odd one you got wrong, um, it was worth the risk of of not of not sending the player back in because we know how important that or how dangerous that second impact syndrome is. So, uh, like yeah, so I said in two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, I would have been you know on my higher horse a little bit around trying to. Trying to explain how we have a duty of care to ourselves for the future, and we have a duty of care to the players, and we have a duty of care from as pros to uh, to amateur players who maybe don't have the medical care we have. And and I saw, I saw a big shift. And as I said, that's why I backed away. So and I, also, if you if you look at World Rugby, um, uh, nearly every decision they make, in fairness, has been around trying to to make the game safer. And how many, how many fans, you know. How many people say, oh, the game's gone soft? And it's not gone soft. It's still an unbelievably um, physical, um, dangerous game, to be honest. And um, and I still love it, uh, absolutely. So I, I, I'm not, uh, anti- I love the game and I love the physicality of it. And I, and I like, you know, I like that element of, of the collision, etc. So, um, uh, but I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that we make it as safe as possible, um, both on the field, 
um, and certainly the laws and, and the and the referees are are doing everything they can to to clamp out um, foul play. And also then in terms of how we look after our players, um, and I think there has been huge shifts in that. So, and it's interesting, like the two high profile cases are, uh, or three high profile cases are probably, Mike Lipman's a little bit later, I think, but certainly Alex Popham and Steve, Steve Thompson is, uh, are pre-2010, um, I would say. And uh, and again, maybe it's, uh, and the, ar- the counter argument could be that it takes 10 years to, you know, to have the after effects or whatever. But I, I would like to hope uh, it, it, that I'd like to hope that the game has got safer, and I'd like to hope that the modern pro um, or amateur player even isn't um, as at risk as maybe you know the the early adapters of professional rugby were. So, aside from potentially taking legal recourse and seeking compensation, which we we would imagine is the plan here on behalf of. Thompson and others, although that is is totally unconfirmed, they have publicised um, what they see as the requirement for World Rugby to, I guess, make public the fact that you can develop these conditions and uh, suffer from the af- these after effects, and basically have it as a a caveat uh, for those about to participate in the sport for the first time or, or parents allowing children to play the sport and so on which doesn't seem totally unreasonable to me on the face of it but also Bernard one of the points that they were making was that they'd like to see contact reduced in training and I wanted to ask you about that because I know Murray you had a piece on the site in which uh, was it, uh, Paul who was it sorry Murray yeah. you said Paul Gustard the Queen's Paul coach Gustard, sorry yeah he said basically we couldn't be doing less or, or it would be impractical, impractical for them to do less contact at Quinns at the moment in training. From your point of view, Bernard, having coached at the highest level, um, would you see a, a reduction in contact in training as being plausible or feasible at all? Or, or does it perhaps vary depending on teams as well? Because on the flip side of what Gustard is saying there, you also have players retiring like Dylan Hartley who are battered basically, you know. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, there's been a massive shift. So anyone who's saying that, um, you know, that we need to reduce the level of contact in training, I don't think is in touch with what actually happens now. Um, and I agree with Paul Gustard. Um, I think there's there's a, the amount the clubs are doing is probably the bare minimum to make it safe for players to play on a, on a Saturday. So, um, and there's a huge amount of contact prep uh, work that goes in. There's um, they're trying to reduce as much bone on bone uh, as possible, and, and I think they have got that right now. Uh, and um, you know, like it was totally different back in the in the two thousands. I mean, you know, Tuesday Tuesday sessions used to be you know full sometimes harder than a game, um, and uh, it's just a case of it's a case of yeah that that has that has changed massively. And the medics and the heads of performance and you know all the different data points we have um, to help. I suppose prepare players properly and keep them fit and and, and uh, prolong their careers are geared towards looking after them. So I don't see that being an issue. And I also like again just to make a point that not to do any contact during the week isn't actually a good thing for a player either, um, because obviously then they get exposed at a at a far greater level um, on a Saturday. So there's a minimum I think you need to do, and and, and I would agree with Paul Gustard, and that's that's across the board. I mean, there's very little. Um, there's no clubs going against the grain on that. So that's that's a bare minimum, and and uh, 
and, and it's widely accepted and widely implemented. Mm. And even technology to, I suppose, track and measure that is a positive change as well. Um, I know there's obviously all the GPS stuff and things like that, but even Guster was saying they've started using those ProTech uh, gum shields where they can measure the, the force and, and that kind of stuff that's developing and it's probably still developing and being grasped by clubs is, is only going to make it better, you would hope. Um, so that's that's definitely positive. Yeah, he made that point fairly uh, forcefully as well that, you know, if you want to get better at jumping, you've got to practice jumping. If you want to get better at handling the contact, you've, you've got to practice that as well. And, and that is part of it. So it'll be like the the onus is on World Rugby, not, probably not to react in, in an emotive way, but to continue to appreciate what is actually happening in the game and, and tracking those levels of contact, the force, the workload that players are, are being put through and, and make decisions based on those facts, I suppose. It was natural, Bernard, for you to draw the parallel between this and the famous NFL case earlier in the pod. And uh, I wanted to just ask you about this, um, I guess, within or alongside adjacent to that NFL situation, uh, from your own experience as a player, say in the late 90s, early 2000s, like, again, you would have been aware yourself that if you had gotten a knock to the head that there are potential repercussions. But that being said, well, I presume, and correct me if I'm wrong there, but you perhaps wouldn't have been aware of the kind of minute detail involved in those and exactly what could happen. I, I, like, I think there's always a vague awareness that head injury is a bad thing and there may be a detrimental impact on you down the line. But maybe back in that era, as much as there was a knowledge of that fact, there per- perhaps wasn't the same knowledge of the extent to which it could be damaging, the exact types of conditions that could be developed. Uh, and maybe on that front then, there was nearly a willful ignorance, if you like, in that it wasn't spelled out how damaging yeah. it could be. Look, yeah, for sure we knew it wasn't something to, to take lightly, but um, probably, to be honest, you're so focused on on, on playing and um, and the short term task of playing Saturday or or, or the week after, um, and because it's not an injury that you know, like the reality for me was I could I could operate with you know post concussion pretty pretty well, uh, and that's a bad thing. You know, if you have a knee ligament or you know or, or an AC joint injury, you can't actually go out and train or or play. Whereas um, unfortunately, I could and. Um, yeah, so look, we we knew about it, we knew about it, but probably wasn't we weren't as educated, and that's maybe our own fault for for not going in uh, and not for not doing our research on it. But I I do think that 2009 2010, um, it did become more obvious uh, that you know the previous generation of NFL players, um, there's been a high instance of of issues, uh, you know, post playing, and and you know, and that's not exclusive to NFL because um you know it's probably exclusive to all contact sports you know and um I just think that you know definitely this generation are, are far are far better educated around it and um that's that's the most important thing to understand it and accept it and and everybody be aligned yeah just on just on that Gav the the kind of first point in their 15 point charter is the fact we want world rugby to accept that you know, and probably highlight that this can happen as a result of playing rugby, which I presume is linked to their case in terms of saying we should have known that this was a possible outcome. Um, and I think that's not a bad thing that people who play rugby understand 
exactly what has happened to some former players. But at the same time, you would imagine, and I'm not trying to play down in any way what's happened. It's horrific. Um, there's a lot of play, players who played rugby in that era and have come out and don't have any issues, thankfully. Like a, a massive number of them. Um, and people who obviously get out of the game with, with injuries and whether that's brain injury or um, or other injuries, yes, that does happen. But there are others who have that career and... and are thankfully not in that position post rugby so it's definitely about limiting the the chances for people to be suffering in this horrific way um, and probably highlighting it a little bit more and saying this can be a result of it but there's positive outcomes to playing rugby too as well and and it can be a great career for a lot of people and it can be a great pursuit for people who aren't even professional as well and it would be a shame if that was completely lost in obvious um, sadness and, and fright I suppose for, for what can happen yeah, that's something that I would come across covering boxing quite often as well, in that people will point out the cautionary tales, the sad tales, and in boxing there are more of them than there are in rugby, rest assured. But I'd always make the point that boxing as a as a sport or as an athletic pursuit does a lot more good than it does bad. It offers people a, an outlet, and often it might be their only way, means of escaping a life situation that... Uh, has every chance of ending in tragedy in any case. I know rugby is, is slightly different from a sort of a socioeconomic point of view, but I, I completely accept your, your point there about the fact that it it shouldn't be lost in this discussion as incredibly bleak and justifiably bleak as it is that yeah, I think, so many yeah. people so many people have great careers, have a great time playing the game and, and thankfully emerge unscathed. But as you say, the point of this, if if they're is a kind of a wider point to it would appear to be it just needs to be as safe as humanly possible it's it's about perpetuating uh, the the progress that has been made in recent years and uh, you know really rubber stamping that and, and and to be honest probably never stopping in a pursuit to make it safer you know what i mean like i don't think there there should ever be a point in a sport like rugby particularly where physicality is only really increasing and collisions are only really getting more heavy uh, there shouldn't be a point where it it's just accepted that this is as safe as it can be. There should always be people looking at improving player safety, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's what we're going to see. I think we're probably going to see even an acceleration of what's been happening. So obviously, high tackles, anything around the head, we've seen over the past couple of years that that's been more strictly policed. There's been times certainly where it's slipped. and I think you'll see almost immediately referees being even more stringent with that. I think the point Bernard made earlier on about um, like part of the HIA process is that if a player is suspected of having a head injury, they should be removed immediately and not and not actually do that pitch side protocol, you know. And I think we've probably seen instances where that has slipped, where a player who's been severely concussed, obviously, has um, has actually been taken off and put through that test. And actually, I know there's an, a former Ireland international who was heavily concussed, knocked out and actually passed that test. And um, that's obviously an extremely small sample size, but I think the sport can be better at just getting guys off. Um, and we've seen a, a couple of instances like that where they don't even do the test. That's that's a good thing if there's even suspected cases. Um, things like that are, are going to be really important and you'll see them accelerate, I think, some of the law trials, even the, the 50-22 one where they're trying to probably take defenders out of the front line and, and reduce the frequency probably of those extreme collisions that are part of the sport and that a lot of people enjoy being part of and watching. Um, but I think you'll see a bit more experimentation pushed through with that just to, I suppose, reduce the number of them as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next in that regard, as well as the big challenge World Rugby probably has on its hands legally. Just before we move on to Champions Cup and looking back on Ireland, uh, just wanted to 
maybe delve into this a small bit more on the side of children, young people playing the sport and concerns that parents may or may not have. Uh, there'll be plenty of people who listen to this podcast who do have young children. I'm sure plenty of people who have children who, who play the sport. And I thought it was interesting to kind of observe from afar a lot of the discourse around this news as it broke during the week, wherein I did see a good few parents um, online and uh, they were making the point that they've had children who played the sport and they've had to pull them out of rugby because of the frequency with which they were being injured because of the frequency with which their teammates were suffering head injuries concussions things like that uh, too often they might have, there might have been ambulances at uh, at grounds and so on and this is we're talking about kind of schools clubs club rugby uh, for teenagers I guess and I found that interesting. I wouldn't dispute it for a moment. It just didn't tally at all with my own experience playing in school, which isn't that long ago. And I was wondering maybe the maybe it has sort of the the physicality has increased drastically over the last ten years. But if I went back to when I was playing in school, even before things like HIA, if we had a bang on the head, uh, there was or there were protocols in place. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure who uh, who was behind them, but we would have been subject to some kind of a rudimentary uh, primitive test and I know teachers and coaches would never took any chances really and I think at six years of school there was maybe one ambulance ever and it was because of a broken leg and this was a rugby school like you know in terms of youth rugby we were probably playing at a relatively high level so I just I'd love to get your thoughts on the burden now as a guy who as you say you're involved with Newbridge the the Leinster School Senior Cup is uh, probably the premium schools competition in the country like and your son plays the game I know he's a, he's a bit younger but like do you have concerns about your son playing the game based on what you see of children when they're that little bit older or I don't know is it just kind of a case by case basis school by school club by club where no, yeah I think it's uh I haven't seen that. I haven't seen a, a vast increase in, in injuries up like he's been playing since under eights, under nines, under tens, under eleven. So yeah, I haven't seen at all. I haven't seen like um, anything that would would make me think that the game is is too physical uh, at that level. And, and likewise at, at schools level, I haven't um, I haven't seen seen uh, a big increase from say when I when I played. I do think at a professional level, look at um, for sure it's more physical. Um, but then you could probably argue that they have the um, the physiques and the uh, and the training environment to be able to to handle that, okay, um, as well. So, look, at I'm not uh, like uh, I, I think uh, I think that the game is still it's still relatively safe. You know, I I wouldn't um, I wouldn't stop him playing or or or, or if I had to chuck my time again, would I, I I'd still do the, I'd still play for sure. Yeah, it's going to be one that rolls on, isn't it? And uh, I'm sure there will be plenty more players coming forward talking about their experiences of it. Uh, We will doubtless return to it. Uh, But let's turn our attentions for now towards some of the on-field action. Uh, Last weekend, to begin with, Murray and Owen Tulin sat down 
for a real detailed breakdown of Ireland's victory over Scotland on Monday. That's available for the 42 members, uh, members.the42.ie, if you're not yet signed up there. But we haven't heard from you on it yet, Bernard. Uh, it was a turn in the right direction as it transpired. Impressive in the sense that I think for the first half an hour and more, it felt like it might have been one of those days where the game just sort of ebbs away from Ireland and we're left to pick up the pieces again on a Thursday. But... There were definite green shoots on this occasion where in the past we might have had to look that little bit harder for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we certainly didn't start well. Um, we got ourselves into a little bit of difficulty. Um, but the the attack that engineered that yellow card, three points, and then um, and then the scores we got uh, just before half time was, was pretty impressive. And, and I thought we... We end up dominating the game, and, and you know there's certain elements of Scotland that you go, Ooh, maybe maybe that's they're not they're not um, at that level. But uh, I'll be honest, going into the game, I thought Scotland had improved. So um, whereas against Italy and Wales, you know I, I was a little bit suspect of the form. Um, I do think that was a that was a good genuine performance from Ireland, and you could see a lot more um, a lot more structure, a lot more understanding of what he wanted to do, and. Um, I think it highlights how important Johnny is, um, and not just what he does on the field. I think him being starting ten the week of that game, and given the the backlash a little bit after Georgia, I just think he had a huge influence in getting the team set up properly, and um, they looked locked in in terms of what they wanted to do, and and it was a huge improvement to be honest. Um, and you know, I think it was massively important that they had that performance or victory. Um, before uh before the the december and, and january and they'll go back into camp in a good place so yeah i'm 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 pretty relieved because i was worried um but i could definitely see improvements whereabouts were they most improved to your mind were there particular aspects where you kind of thought okay i can see real clear evidence of progression here and uh, a bit more of a sense of a plan maybe yeah look at that. i know we we, we had a an order to make a missed tackles in the, in the first First half an hour, and uh, certainly the defense for the try uh, from Van der Mer's try wasn't wasn't great. But in general, I thought we were okay defensively. I thought we were reasonably comfortable. Um, but I, I just thought attack wise, um, our breakdown work. I, I did a piece um, on our breakdown uh, pre-game where I, I was pretty worried, and, and I used clips from England. But it was I could have used clips from from Wales, Italy, uh, Georgia. So our urgency and our accuracy at breakdown had been very very poor. Um, uh, post lockdown and uh i saw a huge improvement in that i mean we looked very secure on our own ball um and uh, we were able to generate quick ball so for me that was that was probably the biggest uh biggest step forward and that obviously led to our attack um being a lot more fluid and if you look at the three tries we scored um all quite different you know i thought it was a, a, an obviously an advantage but a clever kick from sexton for for the first earls try you know power game for off a of a good launch from a scrum where we were just really direct, really physical um, for Keen Heaty's try. And then, you know, going to Wit uh, for, for Earl's second try and, and, and nailing it, um, despite, you know, probably wasn't great defence um, on the edge from Darcy Graham, but we we nailed it. So um, I thought that was impressive. And, and looking, comparing it to England, who were, you know, who were obviously full of confidence, you go back to that period just before halftime in the England-France game where... Ellis Genge knocks it on. I mean, they had a massive overlap and uh, they didn't take it. So we have to credit Ireland when, um, you know, when we when we pulled the trigger to go wide and, and we actually executed. So 
for me, it's probably breakdown and attack were the, were the positives. Murray, I thought it was interesting just going back to that first half hour or so in which we did miss an inordinate, inordinate number of tackles. Execution looked a little bit off. Just some of those unforced errors and indeed forced errors uh, that have blighted Ireland over the last couple of months at this stage. And it did feel as though for all the talk of kind of putting together a complete performance and playing the way that uh, we want to play, it was going to go a little bit awry again. I, I thought... It, and it's nearly a common thread or a common theme with this team now that even actually when things aren't going to plan they do stick at it so like in Paris they avoid embarrassment in terms of the scoreline and and play hard basically until the final whistle despite the fact that for the last 10 or 15 minutes the game is gone Twickenham the same and on this occasion you know you could they wouldn't have been forgiven, don't get me wrong, but you kind of could have forgiven them if the heads dropped after that half an hour where they just think, listen, it's Christmas, let's just get out of here and start again next year. But there was such a such an improvement after a dodgy start. I think that in itself actually is something to be positive about looking ahead to the Six Nations, which will roll around in no time at all. It's the most encouraging thing of all, I think, really, from the game is the fact that they got into a tough position and then they show comp- composure to to dig out of it. Um, yeah, they've absolutely continued to battle on. You would never expect anything less. And if professional rugby players weren't continuing to battle on, even in tough circumstances, then they shouldn't be out there. But they showed a bit of mental uh, fortitude and and smarts to grab hold of that momentum again. And it was pleasing that they did so with that passage that Bernard mentioned the best attacking passage I thought over the whole autumn series that leads up to Duncan Taylor's yellow card. Essentially, it's the attacking passage they've been working so hard on in terms of building their attack in shape, striking off set piece well, being clinical when they have the foot on the throat. Um, and it really should have ended up with a, tr- a try, but for that that ball being slapped down. Um, so yeah, it was really pleasing for them to be put into that position they've been in before where I don't think they've really handled it well. I, I think they've compounded errors on top of errors in, in the past over the last probably two years now really at this stage um, and this was a little bit different and I think listen you're never going to have an 80 minute performance Scotland to my eyes are a good team I think people have kind of written them off again in the wake of this they obviously weren't at their best but they've had a good year they've beaten France they've certainly pushed Ireland in in, in the first game they should have won I think um, and they've definitely improved so they were always going to have a strong patch in the game but Ireland did manage to wrestle it back and, and put that pressure back onto Scotland. You think of, of them putting Stuart Hogg in a couple of tough positions and producing errors um, and imposing themselves onto teams in that way, uh, as well as steadying the line, the line out and the, the scrum after a couple of worrying moments in those areas as well. So, yeah, all in all, it, it was an encouraging way to finish what has been an up-and-down year. Um, we can't quite say they're, they're back, baby, but <laughs> they looked a lot better and a lot a lot more um, convinced of what they were gonna what they were gonna do, um, and I think it leaves them in a decent place. Hopefully, the provinces can get a bit of momentum now over the next um, couple of months because the Six Nations, as you say, is literally around the corner. Nine weekends time, they're going to be back at it. So, not a huge pause for Andy Farrell and Co. But they can do so with a little bit of the pressure taken off and a decent understanding of where they are in terms of player depth and who's going to be part of that and not going to be part of that moving forward as well as what they clearly need to do in terms of what they're doing on the pitch. So, um, yeah, much better position to be in than coming off the back of a tough home defeat to Scotland. It certainly is. Uh, and not to labour that point, Bernard, about playing the full 80, but 
like Murray, you were saying there, like if uh, players are throwing their hat at it at a certain point, uh, they shouldn't be playing professional rugby. And like on the face of it, it's true. But if you think back to 2019, that Wales game, second half, uh, <laughs> even the World Cup exit against the All Blacks, albeit the game has just gone so early, it's difficult to. Why, it's almost a case of why would you be bothered uh, playing on at 100% in a way but like what I'm saying in a, kind of an awkward clunky way is that we actually have seen them capitulate in the past uh, not necessarily under Farrell is the point that I'm trying to make so when things haven't been going their way uh, in Twickenham twice uh, in Paris and early doors against Scotland here where confidence probably wasn't at the highest off the back of that Georgia game they've stuck at it Bernard to an extent that I don't think they were doing previously in the previous sort of year let's say Schmidt's last year uh, and I wonder is that uh, a Farrell thing if you like is that something that he's been looking to instill in them I'm looking as well towards uh, well they've made it public since that Gary Keegan has been working with them it's certainly something he'd be singing from the rafters uh, you know about basically finishing strong like uh, regardless of the situation not giving up that if they can improve the other areas of the of their game that's the kind of thing that could stand them a good stead as well in the spring yeah absolutely uh, it's hard to know who to credit i know farrell has put a huge focus on um on developing you know a, a really good culture and environment and, and a really good mindset and i think that's what really shocked them around georgia was um you know how they lost that physical battle, and and that's probably something that's a big part of of the way he sees the game. And uh, there was a there was a huge reaction, and and I think to be honest, it was an emotional type of performance from Ireland with a bit of a, a chip on a shoulder. And obviously, they went down the line of the whole, you know, media going after coaches, and and um, there was probably a, a reaction to that. And, and I hope that that doesn't that there's not going to be a drop off in that now because. Um, you know they're they're getting praised or or there's that not not that edge to it because that'd be a worry. I thought the senior players, the the leaders. I thought of Peter Manny, you know, was excellent. Uh, Earlsy was was really good. As I said, Sexton Murray were were back. So the guys that we probably built our team around in 2018, after you know injuries and and maybe a loss of form for for some of them, um, they all finished 2020. You know, with, with really strong performances and probably showed their. You know their their value to the team and 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 um you know on and off the field which is which is great so look at um gary keegan being there and having a specialist is obviously uh, a help given the fact that you know one of the the big factors in the world cup review was that they didn't feel that psychologically um they they were being catered for um you know farrell mentioned mick carney being back around the camp and obviously there's an experienced manager there to to help part-time as well so it seems as if they're starting to get the the right people on the bus, and um, yeah, uh, it's definitely pleasing to see a, a, a team. I wouldn't say an eighty minute performance, but from thirty to to eighty, we were pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. We'll take that for now and look forward to the spring with uh, a smidgen of optimism. So, in the more immediate term future, we've got Champions Cup. It's back. This truly is back, baby. And Murray, I was looking at uh, the what I thought would be the pools. I literally just Googled Champions Cup pools, you know, and I completely forgotten the format change. I just saw two pools of about 78 teams and uh, I'm going to let you take it from here. But uh, no, like it, it was, uh, it hasn't been long rolling around. I think it's, there's a fascinating kind of dynamic to this in that the internationals have been away for longer than they generally would be at this time of year. They're coming back to uh, provincial setups 
which are really in full swing and have been forced to uh, kickstart seasons and, and kind of maintain form without these well without the bulk of these international players. Uh, so it's kind of a, a really weird um, moment in the season, if you like, in that we have form to gauge upon, but it's form built without any international players and that applies to not only the provinces but a lot of their opponents this weekend Ulster are first up on Friday at home to Toulouse Uh, they're going to win the game Murray but I'd like to tell me I'd like you to tell me how they do it yeah well it is a really interesting period firstly like there's no pause for breath straight away from test rugby into this Um, and as you say there's going to be challenges for cohesion and integrating players back in I suppose not to completely dismiss what's happened over the last few months with the provinces, but they have in many ways been blown away, those other Pro 14 teams. And I don't really think we've got great barometers of, of where they are. I think that's the fascinating part of this weekend. They go into these more pressurised tests against teams who have had a good chance to look at what they've implemented tactically, but also understand what those returning players are going to bring. Um, in, in the Ulster to lose case, it's fascinating because they only played three months ago in that quarterfinal of last season's, the delayed quarterfinal of last season's competition. And Ulster didn't manage that occasion well. Um, they probably played into Toulouse's hands to a degree. They didn't take a big chance they had in the first half and they never really looked convinced themselves that they could win. Uh, Dan McFarland was very honest about their lack of form after the lockdown, um, which Bernard, to be fair, had flagged from even before they started playing. And... Yeah, they just weren't in a good place to challenge Toulouse. I think they'll be in a better position now. Um, you know, could see his he's back fit, he's in form. John Cooney is definitely back somewhere near his best. He's been really good since his Ireland disappointment. You've got guys coming back from Ireland camp like McCloskey with a point to prove after being frustrated and not getting a lot of minutes. Um, they do have big injuries in terms of Ian Henderson, their captain, Billy Burns starting out half and, and vice-captain. Will Addison's still missing there but I do think they're in a better position they've had a couple of younger guys like you see James Hume in the starting team now who've taken their chances and and deserve an opportunity um, but that's not to diminish for a second the challenge that faces them this weekend it's a really good to lose 23 we've seen how resurgent they've been in Europe over the last number of years and in the top 14 um, interesting that they've gone for Roman Entomac to France out after he, he'll be at 12 with Thomas Ramos who people probably more associated with fullback, he's going to be at out half. Um, and I actually think they're going to miss Peter Aki there in the in the midfield. He's just kind of coming back from injury, so he's he's on the bench. I think Toulouse really kind of subtly rely on his steal. And I think we could see and McCloskey firing that Ulster could cause them real problems in that area, that 10-12, you know, getting gain line and, and rolling off the back of that. For me, it's actually going to be a, a, a bit of a battle. I don't know if it's going to open up as we might expect. The cohesion stuff will definitely play a factor in that. Um, but I think the Ulster pack have, have a big chance to make a massive statement here. Um, one of the interesting challenges of this season is there's only you only have four pool games, not six, obviously. So each one of them has to really count. Um, and while I think Toulouse are, are probably favourites for this game, I, I, I have a feeling that Ulster are going to going to have a, a big home win to, to kind of launch their season yeah I'm supremely confident that Ulster will win I know I've said that in the past uh, about Ireland uh, but I actually mean it this time it's not just showbiz uh, and I know Toulouse are in actually better stead now Bernard than they were last time these two teams met like uh, where upon the resumption of Champions Cup action a couple of months ago Toulouse were what 7th or 8th in the top 14 weren't they if I'm not mistaken and they come in this time around in 2nd in good domestic form but 
as much as it is difficult to gauge uh, the province's progress over the first few fixtures of the Pro 14 season, uh, do you have you seen enough from Ulster to suggest that they actually are this season better to the point of being potential contenders just in the sense of, I guess, not only how they've coped without those international players, but in terms of what they're actually trying to do and how they're pulling it off. They just seem to have developed a, a level of consistency which uh, they hadn't really produced in the past, despite the fact that they have been good in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think they are improved. But I, I think, well, I certainly am just waiting for this weekend for validation of our of our form in the Pro 14 as as Irish provinces. Um, if if we were all to uh, to come on stuck this weekend, there would be a bit of a hammer blow to our confidence. So, look, at I think Ulster have... Have really kicked off in, in in fine form. I mean, you know, obviously Billy Burns is injured. They're able to bring in Madigan. They've Alvy Madison on the bench. James Humes now looks like he's, you know, he's definitely European uh, Cup standard player. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good team. Unfortunately for them, you know, Friday night in Ravenhill European Cup to lose coming to town. You know, you could sell out. It will make it far more intimidating. So, um, that's a disadvantage for for Ulster, but. You know, Toulouse could potentially start this competition. You know, could slip up and still still qualify, even though it'll be hard. And, and I do I agree with um, uh, with Murray that I think Ulster could could pull off a bit of a shock here. But I am I am a little bit apprehensive about just being able to deal with the power of of Toulouse. Um, uh, even though they they look improved, uh, I'd like to see them, as I said, validate that form against the European heavyweight before I get too carried away. Does it help though, Bernard, when we're talking about um, the absence of international players and how a team might cope with, say, a level of opposition that is just leagues above what they face so far domestically? The test players, if you like, that are coming back are collision fit, so to speak. Like they've been playing test rugby. So uh, the physicality of Toulouse would be obviously incredibly daunting for Ulster squad minus their internationals. But with those guys and this applies maybe across all of the provinces there should be almost a, an evening out there in that a lot of the players have been playing at the literal highest level for the last two months yeah no no for sure but i think it's a test you know it's a test level team um to lose so you're probably not relying it's not mccluskey's or or jacob stockdale you're really worried about it. it's the it's the michael lowry's you know the james humes the um, Alan O'Connor's really to, uh, to step up and 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 show that they can mix it with with uh, with with these players. And uh, I do agree. I think um, you know I, I think the Ramos the ten Intermac at twelve. Okay, gives you two playmakers, but certainly I I, I really like Aki. I think he's been phenomenal for them. And um, you know defensively potentially, Ulster can get some gain line in, into uh, offensively. Ulster can get some gain line into that area. Um, but this Toulouse team are are quite pragmatic as well, and and um, yeah, I, I, I like them. I, I think they could be potential contenders to to win it. Um, but uh, look, they might they might start on fire tomorrow night. But the fact they had those those French frontline guys, I saw Dupont scoring a brilliant try against Bayonne at the weekend. The fact that they were back with them, you know, for last weekend will be a huge help to them. 
Hmm. I won't pressure you lads into making predictions given the unknowns of this weekend. I'll just make them for you. Ulster by seven in that one. Uh, Montpellier at home to Leinster. This is a lovely little test for Leinster given that they've been particularly unstoppable in the Pro 14 again, Murray. And Montpellier's league position is a little bit misleading as well. They have three games in hand. I think they're down in 11th or three or four off the bottom, but... uh, you know, they, they could easily spring up the table and be basically in playoff contention if they won a couple of those games in hand. So uh, they're probably in reasonable nick themselves coming into this one. Uh, it's a This is probably a very accentuated step up for Leinster, you'd imagine. But is it one that you anticipate them taking in their stride and passing? Yeah, it's certainly going to be a more muscular challenge when you look at some of the forwards that Montpellier can pick, the likes of Paul Williamson, Guillaume Garado, obviously uh, ex-France hooker. Um, They've got a lot of bulk and and mass and size and power up there. But I do think Leinster will have too much of them. I think Montpellier are a little bit vulnerable at the moment. Yeah, you're right. They've had a couple of games fall by the wayside with COVID. But I think they've only won three of their eight games so far. They're coming off the back of a a good win away to to Clermont. So there's a bit of a bounce with that. But like they're missing Andre Pollard, who's got that long-term injury. Um, and they've had an 18-year-old guy playing at out half, um, Forsan. So whether they back him again remains to be seen, but obviously a, a lack of experience compared to Pollard, whoever they go with. Um, I, I haven't, I've, I've seen a couple of their games and haven't been too impressed by, by this, the rugby they're playing. Um, and I think Leinster, like, there's obviously an element of cohesion and reintegration, and it's even more pronounced here with the number of internationals returning. But prior to this window, Leinster, you know, had that cohesion and I think it'll click into gear relatively quickly um, and I just think with the quality of player they have coming back that they will have too much from Montpellier away there are obviously a, f- a few question marks in terms of like Andrew Porter played a lot of minutes James Ryan Hugo Keenan started all six games as well they've had massive workloads James Lowe's come back injured as has Ed Byrne so they're going to be missing them obviously Johnny Sexton's getting over that dead leg so a couple of things there for Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster probably to consider in terms of their selection which is going to be fascinating because you've had once again so many guys putting up their hands the likes of Kieran Frawley at 12 Jamie O'Brien at fullback has been excellent Ruddock obviously in the back row really strong form um, and a whole host of other guys Josh Murphy you know crying out for a, a chance in a game like this um, so it'll be fascinating to see which way they go with selection but they have an enviable number of ways they can go with it and usually they get a, a response from the players they pick so I think Leinster uh, to start off with a with a nice away win here Bernard would you go along with Leinster to win away from home and what have you made of Montpellier if you've been keeping an eye on them this season yeah I, I agree with um, uh, with Murray in that they haven't been overly impressive um, I think what I would fear from a Leinster point of view would be um, I think they probably haven't respected this competition uh, as much as they should have over the last couple of years. And I remember seeing them come to, you know, I've been in the RDS a couple of years ago when they had a star sort of team under Jake Wise. And I, I just, I felt they they didn't really try, uh, which sounds crazy, but they didn't apply themselves um, at the level they could have. Um, and it was obvious their priorities were, were elsewhere or there was discontent in, in, in the dressing room, maybe Le Vestiaire. But uh they're going to have a good side out and, and, and just uh, I watched them win in Claremont um, they've changed up their coaching staff a little bit so Olivia Azam has, has gone in as a, as a forward consultant um, Philippe Saint-André whose role was supposed to be uh, a little bit higher up a more administration role has 
gone back down towards the pitch to um, to give uh, Xavier Garbajosa a, a bit of a dig out. So and just thinking about Garbajosa and, and what he did in Toulouse in his competition and what Philippe Saint Andre, um, you know, did in in Toulon, uh, it's I, I'm a little bit probably more worried from a Leicester point of view that they will give this competition um, due respect and. Uh, I thought it was amazing seeing Forsan, you know, play against Claremont, kick seven seven penalties, eighteen years of age, um, and when you look at the other tens that are in French rugby at the moment and their age profile, uh, um, it's uh, it's it's incredible. And there's a guy playing Camera. Um, Camera was signed by Montpellier from Toulouse a couple of years ago for I think sixty thousand a month, um, and there was a talk of, of of French rugby young Jeff Backroad. I thought he was going to have a hundred caps, and and he kind of hasn't really kicked on and. You know, we, we saw um, we saw McAloo play at the weekend and uh, uh, Walkie. So just uh, you know, at, at six and and um, but he's a guy with incredible amount of talent and um, you know I, I think at some stage the penny's going to drop and he's going to explode and, and I think I think this is this is a difficult challenge for Leinster for sure. Leinster want to play fast um, and and use their fitness, but um, the Montpellier bench is is pretty phenomenal as well. Like you know, Murray mentioned Guardo. Well. Probably the last twenty, you're going to have, you know Duplessis come on to to replace him. So they have good depth. So it's a look. It's a game Leicester would would, would expect to win, but given the difficulties of integrating players and getting your selection right, um, given the fact that the last European game Leicester played was Saracens, and um, yeah, I think there's definitely a question mark around their ability to to get going quickly. Mm, Leinster by twelve, uh, Racing at home to <laughs> Connacht Sunday quarter past three uh this is a tricky task for connacht murray and yeah. yet as if you were a neutral which we're not really but if you were it's a, a tantalizing prospect stylistically you'd imagine if ulster and toulouse does turn out to be a, a rather more tight contest than one might expect this one should be loose enough yeah well speaking to andy friend earlier on this week and in, in their kind of media briefing He's basically saying we're going to go out there and try and score as many tries as we can because we know that Racing will score. Their attack is obviously lethal, um, so they're going to give it a rattle. I think Racing are 20-point favourites, and, and for me that's probably justified. The quality of their squad is remarkable, um, and they seem to be really clicking. It was I, I thought the video you put up, Bernard, of, of the kind of set-piece attack under Mike Prendergast was, was brilliant because they really seem to be clicking there, don't they? Yeah, I, I just... Um... I haven't really watched them as much. I've been keeping an eye on Montpellier, um, and I, I obviously followed the results and things like that. But I, so I just downloaded a few games uh, the other night, and and I was really impressed by their attack. And sometimes maybe we overcredit the individualism of of Racing, particularly their backs. Um, you know, and they have phenomenal individuals like Teddy Thomas and, and Vakatara, and there's a young Taufania, um cousin of uh, Roman and Sebastian, who's starting to who Claremont actually let go, um, who's uh, pulling up trees on the wing, um, but yeah, I love the detail and and the sophistication and the accuracy of their of their set piece launch. And I just threw something up on on Twitter, uh, just pick out three examples. But uh, like the problem for Connacht would be, you know, I, the the racing attack is is well coached. Plus they have phenomenal individuals, and um, obviously they're playing on a in an indoor stadium with a you know a four G pitch, so. I think and fair to Connacht and Andy Friend has got a great philosophy around playing. So I think both teams will will look to attack, and I think it should be for me. It could be the game of the weekend in terms of entertainment. Hmm. Prediction, Gav. Rassing by seventeen in that one, Murray. 
Nice. Yeah, well, yeah, I wish I could say otherwise, but that's just the way the heart is, uh, or the head rather, is leaning at the moment. I still think it, it will be an absolute cracker. Rassling might pull away late, yeah. but Connacht will be there, thereabouts, I think. Uh, Munster at home to Quinns before we wrap. This is Sunday, half past five. Now, if uh, some of the international players will have a period of acclimatization required this week, Murray, before they settle back into their provincial setups, it would appear as though Peter Romani has truly embraced what Munster have been trying to do in his absence, in that he's playing a kind of a <laughs> Dutch football style of rugby, popping up everywhere and doing everything. And as much as we might laugh, uh, it has been actually effective as well. It's been brilliant to see him sort of utilise a little bit more of that footballing skill that has probably laid dormant a little bit over recent years, albeit he does always fancy a little chip down the wing. Um, but just in a more broad context, the Monster Lads coming back there, uh, they're coming back to a team that's in really good form. It's been the young players that have probably uh, inspired and driven Monster to this 100% record so far. Um how many sort not sorry how, not how many changes but how much will Van Gran reintegrate uh, those senior players how much will he trust do you think some of the young guys that have, have made such a strong start to the Pro 14 season well he's not going to dismiss the, the quality that those guys who play international rugby and are in the Ireland squad bring um, I'll be fascinated by this team selection I think Gavin Coombs has earned a chance certainly in the in the 23 Ben Healy and Craig Casey obviously as well have, have been excellent um, and you would expect them to be involved Probably not. I don't know. We'll see tomorrow, but um, he's not going to dismiss the quality of Conor Murray and um, he's obviously been in decent form recently as well. It was funny, actually. Graham Rountree was talking about, you know, they've been away, the guys, but we're able to send them clips with technology at the moment. So you're kind of wondering, did Peter O'Manny uh, do his Munster preview instead of his Scotland preview and and get into that mode a little bit earlier? Um, but he's, he's coming back with, with a nice bit of form and bounce and it's great that those guys are coming back having watched... Munster and Press and young guys in their jerseys as they'll feel really standing out that's a brilliant position to be in and probably wasn't the case before over the last couple of years now these guys actually have to fight for their positions um, and that's the the really fascinating part of it, it I, I'm just really interested to see what has really changed we've seen more offloading etc we've seen the young lads sad out as I said against sometimes poor opposition in the Pro 14 how's that going to transmit into a, a more pressurised game in the Champions Cup um, the weather forecast hasn't been great this week, so that might obviously limit some of that stuff. But I think there have been little signs there of, of development in attack, even in their shape and, and how they're playing off the, off the rocks in phase play. Really interested to see if that kind of stuff is uh, smooth enough to, to cause Quinn's problems. Because Quinn's have been decent over the last couple of weekends. Two, two good bonus point wins against Northampton and then Gloucester. Um, with the likes of Marcus Smith really imp- impressing. So they'll come with a bit of a, a pep in their step and, and Jerry Flannery obviously having provided some some decent insight as well. Absolutely. It will be interesting, Bernard, won't it, to see how or the extent to which Van Gran applies what Munster have been trying to do this season to this game. It's a different kettle of fish entirely. Quinn's in the Champions Cup. As Murray says, they're coming in with a bit of a, a head of steam built up. So do Munster more or less revert to type and maybe to be fair the weather might influence them uh, t- towards doing so or do they sort of try to play that little bit more expansively than we would have seen in similar level of games uh, over the last couple of seasons yeah I, I think they'll try and play you know um, more expansively and that's certainly what they have been doing but I do think they'll go back to the, the tried and tested but it's too important for for Johan you know um, I think he's 
uh, them get them qualifying out of this out of this comp our group will be you know a huge factor in whether you know his contract is extended etc. So I, I just think there's a lot of pressure on and and um, the reality is he he will have to trust his internationals and thankfully for him they're coming back in great form and you just get the blend right you know get the blend right and keep um, keep the confidence of those young players high uh, and by rewarding some of them with with squad squad opportunities or minutes off the bench. Um, and uh, yeah, keep the ship. You know, the ship seems to be a happy ship at the moment. They seem to be playing with a smile on their face and getting a really good win to start off the, uh, the European journey uh, against Quinns. Um, will 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 be great for squad morale. And and I, I do I think they're going back into a camp that's pressure and there's more competition, which is exactly what Johan would have wanted. Whereas probably before they were overly reliant on internationals um, and probably didn't have the depth in behind. Monster by six, six points to nil in that one <laughs> you haven't had a great run with the old prediction I'm actually taking it I, th I think this is going to be the weekend so where you turn I'd around I'd be surprised if I'm more than a point off in any of those 6-0 to Munster in Thomond Park uh, lads pleasure as always and thank you to everybody <laughs> as well at home uh, who tunes in every week or if it's your first time tuning in thanks a million uh, would you mind leaving us a rating and review if you had the time uh, we really appreciate everybody who, who does take the, the couple of minutes out of their day to send those it helps to propel us up the charts and so on and it's a big help to us as we try to grow the podcast uh, thank you to all of the 42 members I know there were a couple of questions I didn't get around to today just due to time constraints and the fact that there was so much to talk about generally speaking but we will be back to you no doubt uh, Murray and Owen back on Monday Murray is that correct yeah, we'll be back for a, a decent chat about plenty of rugby anyway. Super. Rugby Weekly Extra. That's for members. Members start the $42. Enjoy all of the rugby over the weekend until Monday or Thursday. Mind yourselves. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is Tommy Rugby Rugby Weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh! Oh!